As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to The Phil Hay Show. It's brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. You can get in touch with the show via the new Twitter account at the Phil Hayes Show. My name's Dan Moylan, and I'm joined by Michael Normanson from the Square Ball. Hello, Phil Hayes recovering from his surgery, the surgery he had at the back end of of April. Got his first checkup this next week as well. Uh, pleased to say, Phil is recovering well. Before he was off, we recorded that top ten signings feature that's running every week for ten weeks. So you'll still get to hear a little bit of Phil's voice on the podcast. We started that a couple of weeks ago. This week, we will bring you his number eight signing from the time that he's been covering Leeds United the last 15 years or so. Uh, While Phil is absent, we are going to have guests in from the world of Leeds United. Next week is going to be a treat slash pandemonium slash a lot of fun. Very informative when we get on Leeds United's director of football, Victor Orta, on the Phil Hay Show. But this week, a very warm welcome to Josh Warrington. Hiya, Josh. You're right. Hi, mate. Hi, mate. And uh, yeah, that'll be a fantastic show with Victor. He's a character. Well, we look forward to that one. And right now you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of $3.99 a month for six months, 40% off the full price of a sub. You get all the great analysis, the in-depth features from the best team of football writers on the planet. You get all these podcasts ad-free as well. James Horncastle has done a bit on Rodrigo de Paul this week, which is a really, really interesting read. We're going to have a little bit of a chat with James a little bit later on in this podcast. So stick around for that. In the meantime, if you want to sign up for The Athletic, head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to take advantage of the 40% discount theathletic.com forward slash leads pod into the football and josh you're a champion and we're seeing a great evolution of this side in the in the last week we've seen some brilliant performances from a club that has undoubtedly cemented its place now in the in the premier league with victories against burnley 4-0 and southampton 2-0 how do you reflect on the last week i think uh it's easy to talk in hindsight, but you know, go to start of the season. I thought that games like your Southamptons and your and uh, your Burnleys that we'd be having results like that. And obviously, start of season were fantastic with uh, some results going our way, some results not. But I always thought that we'd be a little bit too much for you know your. I don't know. It's easy to say average teams of Premier League because they're all good teams, but. Obviously, there's a, there's a bit, bit of a gap where, where the money's involved, like your Man City's and, and, your, and your bigger teams. But I always thought we'd be able to deal with rest of teams. So not surprised to see that, to be honest with you. But 
Yeah, probably even more than I expected to be honest with you because we're absolutely destroying them. You know, in terms of play, and it's as though the players have been playing in Premier League for for years and years. You wouldn't have thought that they've just come up from the Championship, so it's very satisfying. Obviously, you don't want the season to end now, and um, for all those critics who've, who've said that we're going to burn out and whatnot, we're we're kind of peaking now. We're peaking. How much of these last two victories do you put down to it being end of season or is it just that we're seeing Leeds United on the rise? I don't know. I think it's maybe a bit on the rise. Maybe obviously these lads who've come in, they've, uh, they're not, it's going to take a little bit of while to gel together. But you know, now they've had them games together and Bales has experimented with what his strongest team is and you know, who works best with who. I think they've started to cement together and, and this is just the product of that really. The, you know, getting the experience at a high level, obviously it'll be a shock to the system for a lot of them. You know, have only just played in the championship and or below. It comes down to timing, doesn't it? You know, in 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 all sports, you know, we come down to timing and peaking and uh, these guys are peaking and if we have a lot bit of a break over the summer, I know there's a few doing international uh, duty, but, you know, come back and where well, we left off and we're going to be real dominant force next season. And we have been this season, but, we're talking like aiming for Europe spots and things like that. Talking about conditioning then, you know, you're somebody who's going to obviously understand that as a boxer. What do you see when you look at, at this Leeds team and this squad in terms of their conditioning and how they've done it? The fitness is, is a massive key and it's easy to say, yeah, everyone should be fit, but there's levels to that fitness as well. And I, I try to focus a lot on, and I always have done throughout my career, on being able to keep a, a strong mindset when you get tired. So, for instance, if I go out and I'm doing a game plan or whatever, if my if, if trainer, my trainers are telling me to throw certain shots, it's easy to do in round one, round two, because you're fresh, you're constantly thinking about it. You go into round nine, round 10, where championship rounds, where your body's tired, your arms are tired, your muscles are aching, and uh, and, and things don't come, you know, to the grey matter as quick as they should do. And and that same in all sports and when the players um are listening to instruction and tactics and stuff, it'll flow at first 10, 15, 20 minutes, depending on how the game's going as well. And when they're highly competitive, when it gets into the late second half, then like 70, 80th minute, that's where things can can fall apart. Especially like I say, if it's been an high intensity game end to end. But this squad, they're that fit that they don't lose that edge. Upstairs, they're all fully focused. They're all switched on, and you know that goals could come any any time in the match, and and they can still play that intensity, but stay switched on, and and that's massive. That's that's someone what comes with having the highest level of fitness because, like I say, when <laughs> the Premier League has got some of the world's best footballers in it, but we're matching them, we're matching them, and that's just through uh, the hard work that they've been putting on the training pitch. So you know when that, that tiredness sets in when you say late on in a game, what do you fall back on at that point? Is is that your training? Is that your fitness where you do the things that you've done a thousand times? Is it repetition? Exactly, exactly yeah. Kind of instinct. You'll fall back on instinct. And, um, you know, sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes it's a bad thing because say you, you may, you've got like a certain mistake and you've only just dined out that mistake. So Bielsa has been in, in the club a few years now, hasn't he? And it may have wiped out some of the mistakes that some players make. 
Liam Cooper, for example, say for instance, Cooper's got a weaker side where players might be able to get one up weaker side. But through Bielsa, he's been able to strengthen that and stop players going down his weaker side. But when tiredness comes in, then it revert back to some of that he's always done, like bad habits, because they're hard to, to, to eliminate, eliminate completely when you've been doing it for so long, especially like so Liam Cooper would have been you know, 27 or so before Bielsa came in. So it'd be hard to completely eliminate that. And when you get tired, you'd revert back to just that normal. But being able to keep a, a strong head upstairs is, is, is down to your fitness and the testament to your fitness. And that mean that'll mean make sure that you know the correct decision making will be right, and it'll, it'll stop him from falling back into them them old mistakes. You obviously know some of the players from your your ring walks and things, and people like Liam Cooper. Yeah. Have you spoken to them much about how things have changed at Leeds and how the how the coaching has developed? I've seen it. I've seen it myself uh, first hand, but obviously not so much in uh, in this last season. But I tell you, when I was getting ready for the Leeds Selby fight a few years ago. Thomas Christensen was in and we were doing a promo for the Selby fight. We were doing a bit of a build-up and I was down on the road down up at uh, Fort Parch and I had a little bit of a walk around the around um, you know the training ground and whatnot. So I'm always I've been there quite a few times now, but I'm just an I'm a nosy bastard, to be honest with you. I like to I like to have a little wander around when I can, because obviously no matter how many times you've been, I'm I'm the Leeds fan and it just it excites you every time. And even just Speaking to some of the players, for instance, I was I was talking to uh, on that day. I was talking to Ronnie Vieira and Calvin, and I was just asking about like the training and and I was asking about the diet and things like that. And and really, all it was, you know, Calvin said to me, "Oh, we get given a diet sheet, you know, and uh, some lads follow it, some lads don't." And I'm right, right, okay, right, interesting. And you know, how do you approach this? Well, we don't really look at that too much. What about mindset? What about psychology? No, we don't really do too much of that stuff. And then after uh, the lobby fight, I boxed Carl Frampton and we we went up to um, up to training ground again to do a little promo. And whilst I was there, I got introduced to what's his bloody name now the the manager, um, the players manager, um, is it Matt Grice, is he called or something? Yes, 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 yes. That's the one. That's the one, Matt. So I seen we seen Matt, and they just started talking about a few things, and I started talking about conditioning and whatnot. And he said, come and meet some of the new staff. And um, like I say, with the transition had been, what, five, six months in difference. And it was unbelievable, the changes that I'd seen. Like, as I went into the initial gym, where last time, it just, you know, it was a gym. This time, there were just data sheets all over the walls. You know, I'm speaking to a lot of different faces that I'd never seen before. And, and obviously, I like to I like to let, pick these people's heads, you know, um, ask questions and and how they flourish and how the, you know, the peak and the conditioning and things like that. And right on the walls there, there was graphics telling me about how all the players getting weighed, the body fat. They're telling me about the recovery, how important that is, how you know, Marcelo is, is, is all for recovery and sleep. And all these, all these things are obvious and they've come out in the in, in articles and, and press and stuff like that. But I think it sometimes goes overlooked. And I think at the time we were, we were playing, uh, getting rid for, might have been Brentford. And they just the data of Brentford was all over the room. And I'm thinking, this is absolutely crazy. It's, I guess it's, there's levels to it in there. There's levels. And since that, speaking of Liam and, and Stewie and things like that, so what, what is it like? Is, you know, obviously we all read and, and and listen to his interviews and things like that, but 
you know, man to man, he, he said, honestly, you know, they've, they've all spoke very highly of him. He said that he's an unbelievable people's person. Like everybody wants to get his respect. He's, he's pushing us to, to work even harder. And, and it's just the little things that it comes over and, and like, you know, self-player management, you know, individually up in everyone's game. So it's fantastic to see. And, you know, it, it, you, you kind of uh, don't want to think of a day without Massimo Bielsa being at the club, do you? You look at him and, and what he's done with his squad, it's, it's unbelievable, really. Just to tap back into something that you said there, Josh, actually, about some of the lads following the diet sheets and some not before Bielsa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It strikes me that there's more of a culture of respect, but also of accountability in that squad. And yeah. if you don't take responsibility for yourself and the things that you're doing, you're never going to succeed, I suppose. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. But I think it goes beyond just them as in individuals. I think there's been a different philosophy altogether brought into the club, not even just with Marcelo, but with how the club is run, with the club being put back to community kind of stands. I mean, 2014, 15, 16, and prior to Rad coming in, when did you ever see players going into hospitals? It died off. All that died off. Leeds is a one club city and it's at the football club is the heartbeat of the city and it kind of lost its way with with the city with the you know one-to-one meet and greets and you know hospital visits players going out of children wards and you know obviously over the last two years it's been difficult with COVID and stuff but the players are in touch they're in touch with the, with the city and, and, and that's a massive difference and we know when Calvin would, had told me that about you know some of the players not following the diet sheets, I thought to myself, you know what? If some of the lads I know who've not missed games in 20, 30 years, who've sacrificed their own weddings, funerals, birthday parties, and they heard, if they if they had them players then and they knew that they weren't following whatever, whatever was put out to them to make them the very, very best, these guys would be, be absolutely fuming because... It's home and away, isn't it? You know, as, as a fan, and I know some fans who are absolutely crazy. I mean, I'm I'm massive Leeds fan, but you know, I don't I don't dress my dogs in Leeds United shirts and things. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that some fans do, and it's, it means beyond anything that you you can imagine. And um, and I think that's the difference there. Obviously, these boys who were all part of the squad. Do you understand? You know, that I think they realise how much. You know, Legion IEDs to people's lives. And um, I think that makes the difference because obviously they've got the respect of Marcelo. They want to impress Marcelo as much as possible. They don't want to be turning up to the training ground, having to get weighed and being overweight or they've put a little bit on or, you know, blah, blah, blah. But also they don't want to let the fans down as well. And no doubt they haven't let the fans down. They've done brilliantly this season. And we're looking at what, maybe an eighth, ninth, tenth place position uh, finish. I think that's what, what a return for the first season. It's amazing, isn't it? I thought that we could finish quite high. I mean, I won't. I won't say we're going to be like, yeah, top four or all like that. But I thought we could, we could, we could make it into top, um, top end of the table. I'm, I'm sure I've, I'll have told uh, some kind of media outlet. Um, <laughs> and reason that I'd thought that. I mean, I'm not no football expert, or I'm not done as much as data as as, as some of the um, fans out there. But just when I watched us down at Arsenal and in FA Cup, um, when we were in Championship still, and uh, all right, Arsenal put the foot down in, in second half and um, the, the class came out in that second half but for that first half we absolutely battered them and you know I always thought that we would be too much for you know the, the the teams who haven't got the the mega mega money 
And um, even even the teams who I've got mega money, we've 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 stood toe to over them, aren't they? I mean, it's been fantastic to watch, and um, I think they've got this season under the belt. They've settled in. They've, they've grown accustomed to it. It's all experience. And uh, by the time next season comes back and the fans are allowed, they'll be they'll be ready for anything, and they'll, they'll won't let the, the pressures and it's not all new territory and things like that. So as a as a fan, you've got to be you've got to be very very happy with it. I think the danger for next season is there's been such a lot of momentum with us this past two years that people will be expecting top four next year. And if <laughs> if we finish tenth again next year, people will start getting pissed off, won't they? But that's that's the danger, Leeds, isn't it? That we when it feels like things are going right, it feels like we're unstoppable at the moment. And it, yeah. if as soon as that stops, I guess is that's when the test comes on it. Yeah, and I think that's where we just need to remind ourselves and just to give ourselves a slap around the, the chops. That if things have been a lot, lot worse, and haven't they? We've got to just take everything, you know, as it is. It's, it's unbelievable football to watch. I mean, it's been said many, many times this season, but we've we've become like um, a football fan's second team, haven't we? You know. They might have the initial team with the following, and then the second team is the watching Leeds United. And as Leeds fans, it's, that's weird to hear, but um, it's, it's, it's that good of football we're playing. Um, and, and yeah, there will be an expectation, but we always expect high from from our club, don't we? So I think I think they'll ride with it, mate. I think they'll ride with it honestly, and I think it can only it can only help because that that energy spills into it. It, it, it comes in the ground with the fans, and that spills onto the pitch. And if we can get that right momentum going at the start of the season then uh, you know Island Road can become you know a, a, a fortress and uh, you know matches a little bit to and fro it can give them a positive boost Well Phil's off at the minute recovering from his uh, his hospital stay but we've kept your voice on the podcast Phil haven't we we've re- recorded these a little while ago your top 10 signings since 2006 the 15 years that you've been covering Leeds United so far we've had Patty Kisnorbo at number 10 Robert Snodgrass, number nine. Who's your number eight? Yeah, hopefully I'm not dead by now. Otherwise, these are going to get very, very weird uh, as we go. Number eight, Luciano Becchio. Came from Spain, originally from Argentina, and arrived in pre-season when Leeds were over in in Ireland. They had three games over in Ireland um, under McAllister. And he turned up with his boots. He had um, braces on his teeth. He had classic South American long hair. And I think at the time, Leeds were quite prone to trialists in that sort of scattergun recruitment approach where you bring them in, you kind of hope they might be great, but most of them turn out not to be good enough and you never see them again. And it was David Prutton who said the first time Becchio turned up, he did think, who is this guy? And he couldn't really speak any English and, and you assumed that he'd be gone in no time and, and that would be that. But as soon as he started training and, and as soon as they started seeing what he was doing, Straight away, they all said to each other, he's got some talent, this lad. He, he looks like a very good centre-forward and, and a very good finisher. And, and one of the things that stands out in my head early on with Becchio was him coming off the bench um, for the, the first game of McAllister's, the start of McAllister's second season in League One. It was away at Scunthorpe. And with one of his first touches, hitting the bar from about 25 yards with this shot that, that wasn't really there to be taken. And But it was a bit speculative and he just leathered it from miles out and, and almost stuck it in, in the top corner. And he, I think the the best thing you can say about Becchio, the biggest feather in his cap, is the fact that he made the top 10 list of, of league goal scorers at Ellen Road, which is, you know, th- there's hardly anybody in there from the modern era. And it's very, very difficult to break into a, a, a little group like that. 
but he was just a, a hugely reliable goal scorer and, and a little bit like Snodgrass I felt that towards the end before he he was sold he was basically carrying leads on you know in, in the respect that nobody else was scoring goals he even when he was playing poorly he was coming up with goals and I think he had 19 mid-season when he finally left for, for Norwich and, and was sold by Warnock and just all round quality player and, and actually when I, I interviewed him um, about a year ago for The Athletic as well really nice guy as well 190 appearances, 75 goals. We spoke last week um, when Robert Snodgrass, it was heartbreaking when he left. This one, this killed us, didn't it? It certainly did when we saw what we were were getting in in return. I think one of the nice things with Becchio was that it always felt like he was absolutely maximising every bit of talent he had. It felt to me like he he couldn't have given Ennis any more. And it was almost a nice story that he'd he'd come from obscurity and, and that we'd it felt like we'd grown together to a point up to the to the extent where he decided actually maybe I'm a bit better than this and I, and I could maybe have a little stint in the Premier League. I think as well, he, he didn't feel from what he said to me and there are always two sides to these stories so you need to be sceptical on both fronts but he didn't feel that even though it was portrayed as Becchio forcing his way out or Becchio looking for better opportunities, he didn't feel that there was any sense at all of Leeds particularly being bothered about keeping him. When you got to the point of Becchio leaving, you suddenly realised that just about everything that had been good about that team had gone. Snodgrass had gone, Housen had gone, Beckford had gone, Gradle had gone, now Becchio was leaving. And there was very little left, you know, but even guys like Johnson and Kilkenny who'd been, who'd figured heavily in that promotion team were elsewhere. It it had been decimated and you were left with a squad under Warnock, which had very little razzmatazz about it, very little stardust. It was seriously, seriously depressing. I think the slight difference with Snodgrass was that when he went, it was Warnock's first summer and Warnock had the, the reputation of somebody who got teams promoted. So you still in the back of your head thought maybe this this will work. But by the time Becchio went, you, you realised that it was absolutely not happening and that Leeds were heading into another period of just mediocre football and mediocre drifting. It's funny, isn't it? What makes somebody a hero at a club? Obviously, scoring goals helps a great deal. But it's it's the Argentinian, the the suave appearance, the hair, all those stylings, but also playing like an English centre forward. I think that's one of the things that really endeared him to the Leeds fans. Certainly initially, you just felt, I think Michael said this, you felt there was that sort of ultra commitment from him. And and also, he, you know, he, he was involved in, in promotion, but he was the man on that night against Millwall that, that scored that goal. And I know ultimately it didn't count for anything in the playoffs, but that moment was absolutely magical. And and given the dross either side of it, you know, yes, promotion in that season. But from there onwards, a lot of barren years where Leeds weren't really in the mix for promotion. Prior to that, relegation from the Premier League, relegation from the Championship, defeating the playoff final, you know, meandering in, in League One. You, you had to kind of cling to those moments. And I still say that that is the loudest I've ever heard Ellen Road, and we've never had an invasion of the press box quite like it. Phil's top 10 signing since 2006. That is number eight, Luciano Becchio, following Kisnobo at 10. Snoddy at nine. Tune in next week to find out who is number seven. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit DirecTV.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. So joining us now on the Phil Hay Show, Parag Marate, thank you so much for coming on and joining us and congratulations as well on a successful first season back in the Premier League. Thank you. Uh, congratulations to all of us, uh, all, uh, not, just, not just me, but all of us supporters, because uh, it's really for all of us. You're the president of 49ers Enterprises and vice chairman of Leeds United, for anybody who doesn't know you. So just to give us a little flavour of who you are as a person, so what's your typical match day like then when you're in, in California? Is it uh, watching Leeds United from the comfort of your bed, from the office, from the bed in the office? Which is it? Gosh, it really depends what time the match is on. But I will say this, that uh, I don't miss any. So sometimes when these matches are at, at noon or 12.30 in the UK, it's 4 or 4.30 in the morning. Uh, and so at that time, I've got my iPad in my bed. And, you know, once or twice or three times in the morning, I'm waking my wife up, uh, much to her chagrin. But most of the time, uh, it's uh, either in my office or on my TV. So American owners, very much in the news. They've been leading the uh, European Super League breakaway charge Naturally, it's fostered a little suspicion towards American owners in the Premier League. So what's your message yeah. to any, any Leeds fan who's concerned about 49ers' um, intentions? Well, I, I'm glad you asked that because I actually just had a, uh, you'll see uh, tomorrow, I just, uh, I just did a couple of interviews about this and I, I have some strong feelings about it. And that is that uh, anyone who was thinking about the Super League, uh, at least you know the UK clubs, I just feel like they don't understand what makes... English football tick. It's ripping apart the fabric of what makes this special. People want to see their club. They want to celebrate their club when they get promoted and they actually want to commiserate and, and, and they, they want to be proud of their club and push for their club when they get relegated. It's, it's part of what this is all about. If you don't struggle for something and if you don't go through the struggle of trying to get somewhere, then you don't appreciate it as much when you get there. And the, the concept, even the concept of this big six, I don't want to say irritates me, but bothers me because who anointed them the big six, right? They are self-anointed, self-proclaimed because it's at different points in time, there was different big six. 15 years ago, the big six was actually maybe a big four or five because two of them weren't in it. 25 years ago, we would have been one of the big six. So it's at different points in time. And yet, to get something uh, based on your status today to guarantee something for the rest of your life. I mean, wouldn't you like to tell your bosses right now, based on what you've achieved, that, hey, you'd like to make this salary for the rest of your life, really, no matter what. And, and you don't really have to work that hard anymore. I'd certainly, that'd be nice to do that. But what have I earned at that point? Right. So I've re- I, I said this in January, and I'm sorry for being so long winded. I said this in January, and I'll say it again is that I, I felt like uh, some of the American counterparts who had invested uh, in, within across Europe really is, I think maybe they viewed it in an emotionally detached uh, way where it was really more about buying an apartment building, maybe not visit that building too often and not really caring about the tenants and just hoping that it appreciates in value. That's just not what sports is about. You have to have a, you have to have your competitive juices going. You have to care about this because if you don't, there's really no point in being a part of it. Uh, and so that's why, for, like I said to you, right before we got recorded, I mean, I'm sitting here 
Uh, I'm sitting here hoping to be on a five-day test and release just so I can attend the, the West Brom match on, on Sunday. Uh, and I'm so excited to be there, just like all the six, 7,000 supporters that are going to be there because I care. I want to be there. I want to see Leeds United in the Premier League play a match. Do you feel like you've got that deep understanding now? You've been active in the background for a number of months, years now. Uh, have you got that deep understanding of Leeds United as a club? Uh, I think I have a long ways to go because, you know, a lot, this club has been a part of people's family uh, and a part of people's identity for not just a uh, generation, uh, but, but multiple generations, right? And it's new to me. It's three years, four years new to me. But do I have a deep appreciation for it already? Certainly. Uh, has it become part of my identity? Certainly. And, you know, that's something that I really love. And it's different than American sports. It just is. There's to call English football fans fans is a disservice to them. And even even supporters is, is almost a disservice. And that's where, you know, I made the comment that we are uh, that I consider myself just a steward for the supporters that I really believe that because this is their club and it has been part of them. It has been part of their families for multiple generations. And, you know, I experienced it. I was at but I was at both of the two years ago at the Derby matches uh, where, you know, we ended up losing in the second leg. And and actually, you know, we won the first one. We went up to we went up two cumulative goals in the at Ellen Road when we got back when we played the second leg. And I felt the pain. You know, I was eating I was eating takeaway curry in my hotel that night, ready to take my flight home the next day. I was just depressed. Uh, you know, and I felt it. And then, you know, to to compare that with the fans who have gone through that for uh for 16 or I guess at 14 years at that point. Uh, before it having got or 15 years after that having gone up like I, I can't say that I'm with them that I could I completely understand it but I certainly appreciate it. so as a steward for the club then what's your vision for Leeds United in let's say I don't know five years let's say I think it's uh, a multi-phased approach the first was for us to be able to, to get promoted right and and now uh, the next that we're in right now is to show that we belong and not just show that we belong, that we can hang around by the laces of our shoes and be 16th, 17th, but really show that we can compete and can compete with you know all levels, uh, all levels of the table. And I think we've shown that. And I think the goal wasn't necessarily where in the table we'll finish, but the goal is to show that we can be competitive. And with Andrea's vision and Coach Bielsa and Victor's leadership on the pitch, and it, our mindset has shifted. And I don't know if the supporters have seen it, but it certainly feels like even from the second half of our season relative to our first half, the mindset shifted. The way that we played those games against the top table clubs, uh, it changed. It was just a different mindset. And I think I'm excited about next season uh, because I feel like we have a certain confidence now. And so to answer your question specifically about five years from now, you know, at that point, I hope we are competing for, for Europe and for Champions League year in and year out. And what do you think you can provide from a, a 49ers perspective then to make Leeds United competitive over the next five years? You know, one benefit in a lot of ways we've been there and we've done that. I've been with the 49ers going on 21 years now and on and off the pitch, I've helped transform us from in 2001 when I first started, we were a club that had storied history with five world, uh, Super Bowl trophies, world championships, and, and but had fallen on hard times on, on, the, on the field uh, in, in our case. And we had played, we were playing in the oldest unrenovated stadium in the NFL. It took us a decade, decade and a half. But we got back to, you know, play, we built a new stadium and we brought our club back to a position where every were competing for a Super Bowl. 
apps that we've put together that can apply to help us here uh, here across the pond. And we feel like there's just a lot of ways and places that we can help bring a level of sophistication to the club on and off the pitch that will help them. So the, the stadium, I guess, will be the, the cornerstone of pushing those revenues up, getting more fans inside the stadium. How far do you think you're prepared to go in terms of, of that renovation? Are we looking now at wholesale stadium redevelopment? There's a delicate balance here, Dan. It's it's really that, yes, there are things that we could do to modernize the stadium and to increase capacity, you know, hopefully get us increased to get to above 50,000. Angus has talked about that over the last few months. But we have to maintain the special elements of what we have in a 100-year-old Ellen Road that is a menacing environment for opposing team players. And it is a difficult place to play because our supporters make it a difficult place to play. And what we have to be careful, when I I say delicate balance, we have to be careful to not uh, make it just a sterile environment because we want to increase revenues for the club. We want to increase revenues, yes, but we want to maintain that magic in a bottle that we have uh, to really keep that competitive advantage that we really feel strongly about. You know, and that's one thing that I'm really excited about is we've managed to have a successful season without our great competitive advantage that is Ellen Road. I can't wait for Sunday because 6,000, 6,500 fans are going to build us a competitive players haven't seen in 37 games. Parag, what does that look like in, in real world terms then? How do you preserve those things in the stands? How do we keep that atmosphere? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think that for some our main supporters and everyone we have, we have to keep it loud. We have to keep it, uh, we have to keep fans close to the pitch. We have to maintain all that. You know, sometimes you, when you make a stadium too sterile, you're uh, you're putting too much premium. You're putting too much of something in in an area where it's you just don't lose that volume, uh, right? And something that's great about Ellen Road, it's it's built it's built almost up, right? Yeah, so you're almost either right by the pitch or you're on top of the pitch, uh, right? And that really creates a great environment. That's something that. Uh, I remember we were very conscious of when we were building Levi's Stadium for the 49ers uh, in that we also had a relative, because we had a relatively smaller footprint, we built it up. And what that meant is our fans were right there being able to create uh, that menacing environment. And so we have to, we have to, we have to make sure that we maintain that. Well, we look forward to Ellen Road being a bear pit in, uh, in years to come and hopefully being at the top end of, of the Premier League and Parag, best of luck with the project. I think we're all right behind you at the minute. Awesome. I, I can't wait to get there on Sunday. We're joined now on the Phil Hay Show by James Horncastle. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Talk about him then. Tell me about that sweet, sweet footballer from Argentina. You know the one. You've interviewed him. Um, it's the article uh, that is on The Athletic right now. Rodrigo de Paul, where you put to him the links to Leeds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was shouted down. I was uh, The Zoom call almost ended uh, when I asked... I left that right until the end of the interview with DePaul and uh, I thought the the press officer might have dozed off, but no. I mean, the, the interesting thing was, as soon as I mentioned it, I think he must have known um, that it was coming because he smiled. And yeah, I mean, he was very guarded. He did say, look, I'm relaxed about it. There's been lots and lots of talk, which, you know, ultimately he did kind of fuel by replying to one of your your tweets over at the square ball. But... Yeah, I think this this story runs and runs, even though I think at the time, Phil and I kind of looked into it and it didn't seem to be ever really a, an advanced stage. But 
I, I can't remember a player generating this much kind of interest on Twitter. Um, you know, in all my years kind of reporting on City A, just following European football, I can't, I can't remember. I mean, I've had literally one Twitter account pretty much every day for the last six months ask me about Rodrigo de Paul. Uh, I'd like to so, just stress that's not me, by the way. <laughs> Your burner accounts. It's behind an avatar <laughs> and it's a name like de Paul uh, LUFC. So, yeah. Why do you think it never got off the ground with Leeds then? Was it simply a matter of economics? Because the vibe we got from Angus Kinnear when we've spoken to him over the last few months was there are lots of players you make an inquiry about some go somewhere, others don't, which I took to mean that an inquiry had perhaps been placed, you know, about how much would you be looking for? And they've balked at the price, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, Udinese are still a very well-run club, even though they haven't um, sort of been challenging for Europe in in a while, you know, really really since um, Di Natale retired. A lot of the guys that they've gone and signed have, have actually moved on and done really, really well elsewhere. So I think, you know, they don't need to sell, unlike a lot of other Italian clubs who are, you know, live hand to mouth, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard for a lot of them to get to the end of the month. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're really dependent on kind of player trading, whereas Udinese aren't. We had a, we had a piece, kind of an in-depth piece on their whole project really a, a couple of weeks ago, which is kind of how this interview came about. And, you know, they do everything. I mean, it sounds really banal but they do everything to make sure that their players are, are really happy and their families are settled and I think that certainly for for DePaul there was no real urgency to leave and you know I mean his manager Luca Gotti said look you know it was it was quite a quite an odd period really um last summer last autumn because you were still what only maybe three or four months into a pandemic there were all these restrictions around um you didn't know how much you could travel Clubs didn't know how much money they had. His his girlfriend had, had just got pregnant, um, and uh, you know I think the the idea of, of of moving in this period where you can't, for example, you know I mean if he'd moved to Leeds, let's say he wouldn't have really been able to travel around outside the bubble that Leeds uh, Leeds players have been in because of kind of COVID restrictions. He wouldn't have he wouldn't have got to uh, you know sort of enjoy what Leeds has and West Yorkshire has to offer. So I think all those kind of things played played a part, and also I do think there is there's some big interest in him from top Italian teams and some let's say Champions League qualifiers in Spain, which he was advised to maybe yeah wait another year and the, and these clubs that have been hit by the pandemic will be able to come back again. Yeah, throwing forward to this summer, I think the advantage always lies with Italian clubs when when you've got a guy like DePaul at Udinese, because you'll always have an inter, you'll always have a Juventus who can basically say, here are two of our really good young players or a guy who's really good, but maybe not good enough for us. We'll package that together. We'll throw in maybe another five, 10, 15 million, whatever, and we'll do the deal that way. And I think all of those things, maybe waiting to see, see how things played out post the pandemic that we're still kind of coming out of, uh, had a bearing on it as well. So do you expect him to move this summer? It feels like the, the timing is of the essence with him now, given the age that he is. Yeah, I, I think what's, what's interesting about that is, is it's good that you bring up his age because I think some of the some of the smarter clubs look at that and think, hang on a minute, 
Udinese are going to ask again for, let's say, between 35, 40 million. He'll want an increase in his salary. And that's, uh, that's going to be a significant outlay, even for, even for a big Italian club in this, in, this kind of, in this kind of environment. And if we give him three, four-year contracts, He's going to be 30, 31 by the time that comes to an end. Are we going to ever get that kind of money back, I suppose? So, so some clubs are asking themselves that question. I do think now after three or four years at Udinese, he does feel that it's time It's time to move on just because this is a player who should be playing in Europe or um, let's say on a bigger stage um, than, at, uh, than at Udinese. I think if he has a strong, I mean, I don't think he even needs to have a very good Copper America um, to get uh, get a move. And also, I mean, there were reports a month ago that he'd he'd uh, had coffee with uh, Mino Raila, you know, one of the super agents. Raila is someone who can open doors to to uh, the Premier League, to big clubs. I mean, it's quite interesting when we had Raila on. We did an interview with him a few months ago, and he said, "I don't take any of my young players to the Premier League just because." The pressure there is high in terms of expectations on managers. Yeah, that discourages them from playing young players. But DePaul's 26, 20, 27, so he's ready. So, yeah, I would be very, very surprised if he's still an Udinese player come the start of next season. Will he be at Leeds, though? That's the big one. Well, I'm curious. I'm still curious about this. I think, obviously, Bielsa, his presence, his continued presence at Leeds, um, if he does sign a new deal, is obviously a massive attraction for any player, but I think for particularly for an Argentine player. And whenever Rajutsani speaks, you know, Rajutsani always says that, you know, the, the goal isn't just to be a team that fights against relegation and survives at the end of the year in the Premier League. You know, he wants to push on and get the team into, into Europe. And to be honest, I mean, you know, DePaul is, that, is the kind of player who would, I think, make that sort of a difference. So it depends on budget. Now, ultimately, Leeds have stayed up. Yeah, they haven't gone straight back down. They will be able to count on Premier League money yet again. At the moment, I think it's still it's still quite a fluid fluid situation, and I don't really know what Leeds' appetite is for meeting that that asking price, which is still very high uh, from Udinese. We'll have to we'll have to see. Well, I mean, Angus Kinnear would have us believe when we spoke to him on um, on last week's show that there's no real appetite for it. But from what you've said there, James, I'm taking it that on that Zoom call, he blinked the letters L-E-E-D-S <laughs> at you in Morse code with his eyelids. So we look forward to him signing on July the 1st then. Thanks very much for joining us, James. Cheers, guys. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
back with Josh Warrington now, and we're back at Ellen Road, finally, after a long wait <laughs> against uh, against West Brom on Sunday. And finally, we start to experience the Ellen Road crowd. It's going to be a small crowd, Josh, but uh, you know we're, we're actually talking three years almost to the day when you fought Selby at Ellen Road and yes. you enjoyed that crowd yourself. How important is it? A crowd is massive. A crowd is massive. And um, like I say, especially when you, when you get used to that crowd, no, I've, I've over recent times and last fight I've, I've experienced not fighting in front of crowd and I've not experienced that in in such a, a, a long time. Listen, having having the crowd behind you is, is is unbelievable. I've certainly grown into it now. When I started coming through, I I had a few fans following me, and then I'd started to build a bit of a fan base in in Leeds when I'd won English title, and then it just went another level when I I signed with Matchroom initially. And uh, and I didn't know how to handle it. You know, I've gone from fighting in front of like fifteen hundred people in leisure centres to fighting in front of ten thousand. At one point, I had, I was still working a nine to five job, and I had ten thousand in Leeds Arena. I had Vinnie Jones doing ring walk, and I was doing interviews with national press. And I remember turning up to them shows like in 2014, 2015, absolutely bricking it because I'm thinking to myself, all these people are paying their hard-earned money. And I've got to impress him, make him, make him enjoy the night. But I felt I'd it put pressure on my own shoulders then. I'd feel really nervous. And I'd kind of think to myself, oh, buddy, why can't I just fight it? Like fighting, you know, in gym somewhere quiet and just get it over and done with and then maybe stream it on telly after. <laughs> but over years, you get used to it. Experience is the best teacher. You know, you start doing little things a little bit different. Like I used to turn up to a venue like three, hour, three hours before the fight. Then I shot on that down, so I didn't need to be there three hours before. I'm like, there for an hour and 45. That's enough time for me to get warm and get ready. And then you start to build a bit of resilience, and all of a sudden, you're not getting nervous when you're walking into to venue. You're enjoying the occasion. You're not nervous when you're sat in change rooms. You're having a laugh and a giggle. You know, you start switching on when you need to switch on and not burning that excess energy. You know, when you walk into the ring, you learn to not try too hard to impress them, but take the energy from the crowd and use that energy and sticks your own game plan. But if you need that, you need that lift and you can hear them screaming and shouting, then then use that lift and use that boost if you need it. And we often, we've seen it down Ellen Road um, when it's bouncing and the, the, the lads have got the backup. It's it's a wave of energy. It's crazy. It's crazy. But all right, let's have a look at this, the game a few weeks back against Man United when some of them challenges were going in. Like referees are only human being. But when there's like a, a 40,000 wave of noise, it's going to have a difference on what cards he's going to pull out. Is he going to be as leaning as pulling cards out to lose players? Is he, is he going to, should he um, send, you know, some of the Man United players off of some of the disgusting challenges they were <laughs> pulling? And um, you look at it then in the comparison, obviously they were, they were playing behind uh, closed doors so nobody there. But if there'd been 40,000 there, maybe he could have got the lads a little bit more pumped up getting into challenges and getting straight back up and maybe pushing a little bit harder for a ball. So having a, having a fan base and a, and a crowd is is absolutely fantastic. So I'm going off course there a little bit, but um, it is fantastic to have and I'd rather have it than, than rather not, you know. Well, to draw parallels with your own experience, the fight against Lara in the in February this year mm. is the one that you lost. And do you think the yeah. lack of crowd affected your performance on the night? And, you know, trying to draw parallels with what, what Leeds United have experienced, it obviously hasn't affected them in that sense, but... Could it have been even better with people in? Yeah, I think so, mate. I think so. Like, um, I don't want to say that 
I can only fight in front of a crowd because like I say in the first part of my career I didn't have that many people behind I mean I remember one time fighting in Manchester I had four people come watch me you know so it's not always been that big crowd but like I said to you I've got accustomed to it I've got used to it now fighting behind closed doors it was probably one thing I overlooked I expected myself to be as pumped up doing the ring walk as as, um, as I normally am and I'm laughing and joking with you know, I've left my change rooms. I'm laughing and joking with the floor manager of Sky Sports who said, you know, wait here 10 seconds, wait for the announcer. And normally I'd be laughing and joking in corridors of the Leeds Arena or laughing and joking like Ellen Road. And, and then when it's time to go and I see people's faces, that's when I switch on and I see the passion and I see them screaming and shouting and it, and it, and it just, it sets me off. Now I get on top, onto that, um, onto that ramp down in London and I stand on top of there and I kind of forgot myself for a split second. I forgot that I wasn't walking out in front of thousands of people. And I kind of played this over in my head a few times, but I never didn't prepare myself for what I exactly I saw. And I all, all I saw were the ring and bloody hazmat suits all over. You know, people <laughs> in, the, in the white baller suits and that was it. And like I say, when I get up there, when I come out of the, um, you know, the back corridors and I jump onto the ramp and I'm seeing like thousands of people screaming and shouting, that's when it's switched on. For me, it's I tell myself, it's time to go work now, Josh, it's time to go work. And I guess up there on the ramp and it, it wasn't coming. That that rush of adrenaline wasn't coming. The, the switch on wasn't there, but I knew I had a job to do. So I walked to the ring and get in the ring and I'm, I'm thinking it'll come now, it'll come now, it'll come now when I'm in the ring. I predict the right players out, my shouldn't give a players out and and I'm, I'm, I'm pumped by the time I get to the ring, but it, it didn't happen this time. And then and I'm bouncing off the ropes, I'm looking about and I'm and I'm and I'm seeing nobody. I'm just seeing posters on the wall, and and that's it. And it's and it's little things like that. What um, you kind of take for granted. And I think I done that that night. Like, don't get me wrong. If I had to fight behind closed doors again, I've experienced it now. But that was certainly um, a little bit of shock to the system for myself going into that fight. And uh, I certainly missed the fans that that night. When we lifted the championship trophy. Uh, it's not quite yeah. a year ago now because of the uh, the strange calendar with COVID, but you were inside yeah. the stadium and otherwise, you know, mostly empty stadium. Can you tell yeah, us what yeah. that was like? Yeah, I feel like, oh man, I feel, Dad, when you say it, I feel, I feel a little bit dirty, I feel a little bit seedy because I, <laughs> I abused my position and able to get in there. I, the first time and probably last time I'd, I'd do that, but yeah, it was unbelievable to be fair. I'd met up with the, with the players um, a few weeks back when, when Othersfield got beat. Oh, no, sorry, when Huddersfield beat West Brom. Because I was, I, was, I was out for the miss, with the missus for a, for a bite to eat. And I think that was one of our first meals out um, since since the first lockdown. And then I listened to BBC Radio Leeds and obviously we, we got promoted. I We had a meal in, in town and I was just sat there numb. And I said to her, I said, listen, after this meal, we need to drive past the Lum Road. And she said, what for you, weirdo? And she said, you know, I said, we just need, I just need to feel the, the vibes off the, off the stadium. We've, we've been promoted. And when obviously, when I turned up there, so did bloody 50,000 other, other people <laughs> just hanging up outside the stadium, letting off fireworks and that. And I got, got actually got a call off one of the directors saying, come on in, you, you know, you need to part of these celebrations. I don't know why, but fortunate enough to get in. Then uh, I got invited down for the Charlton game. Now that was a bit weird. Um, I actually seen Phil down there for late because I, w- I was in the media in the media doing that stuff. I was sat behind all the, the Charlton squad because obviously they the one in the dugout, they're all in the, in the stand. It was a little bit weird, really. It was just like watching, obviously watching Leeds, but 
in kind of a Sunday league environment where you can hear managers screaming and shouting and carrying on. You can hear the players from sidelines carrying on, but you're not hearing massive roars of of, of, uh, of the of the crowd as well. And then towards the back end, that would a little bit uh, again something that was a little bit weird was obviously we've become champions and we get to lift the get to lift the the cup and whatnot the trophy. And then looking down and seeing the, um, all them boys in front of me, just putting their head in their hands because the the inevitable is coming and they're they're getting relegated. But yeah, we it was surreal to see them all there, like I said, lift lift the trophy, all all celebrating and cheering after. And I think it was a bit of relief for for a lot of them because I think they were worried what was going to happen with lockdown, and the, they probably started to believe things like. It was going to get the league was going to get wrote off and this and other and then and then the momentum they had before lockdown was going to kind of flourish and it give other teams to to get up and uh, it was just a relief for them to to get it over the line and and, and obviously finish the way that they did. When we spoke to Angus Kinnear last week, he was saying that the players felt like they'd been robbed of of a promotion mm-hmm. moment. Did you get that sense as well from speaking to uh, the boys in the camp? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, obviously, I think they were they were just happy to do it more than anything, but. It comes to the back end, doesn't it? Because that you've got to really weigh it up now. But that Barnes again, wasn't there? Where they had a right old ten minutes in the last um, in the last uh, in, in in the second half, where they really, really, really came at us. Now think of that in front of a crowd, and I'm, I'm you know, we're, talk, we're all talking as Leeds fans here. We know what the, our fan base is like. We have some unbelievable fans, like I say, but we have some. Pretty fickle fans as well, who were uh, quick to let the voices heard. We've got nervous. I mean, we've got nervous fans, haven't we? That's what we've got. I think yeah, that's, we, that's what we said at the time. When it, if the end of that game would have been unbearable. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and that could have had an opposite effect on us because that spills on. I don't care what anyone says. That spills onto pitch. You know, I've spoke to the lads and heard that first hand. They says they feel it. You know, when people are getting the back up because you know they've missed a shot or you know, the, the Mr. Challenge or whatever, whatever that has happened, it's going to have an effect. And and, and when there's a, a few thousand of them devs shouting that, you know, it, it, it creates a noise, it creates a bad atmosphere and it makes people a bit restless. And that would have spilled onto the pitch. So it, probably the way that the season finished, it would have made, might have been a good thing that the, the crowd weren't there. But I think they may have been robbed because obviously so many fans are wanting to see that. You listen to me even myself, I feel a bit dirty after I'd been um, watching them lift the cup because I, I felt um, you know, there's people who've, who've been going to Leeds longer than I've been alive. Who, who, who like I say, have never missed uh, a game. Who've been home and away, have travelled Europe, and, uh, and they've done anything to see that moment. So um, I did feel a bit dirty, to be honest with you, for them. Even my old nana has said in the past, I'll probably want to see Leeds United back in Premier League in my time, and she's been going for for years and years and years, you know. So. I think the fans more than anything have, have, have really been robbed. Just to relate it to your own experience again, like if you imagine that that Selby fight, which I'm, I imagine is probably like one of the one of the best days of your life. If you imagine yeah. that same thing behind closed doors, I know boxing is a very individual sport. So would you have felt the same about that if it had, if it had just happened in an empty arena somewhere than the way it actually unfolded at Ellen Road and Kaiser Chiefs, Lucas Radderby, all that? How would how would that have compared? Do you think to you? I had to say, really, I had to say is that because um, there's quite a few events throughout that day where the fans were kind of involved and what made me more relaxed. Now, 
I wanted to punch Sobbies in anyway. I didn't like it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I could have done it in my back garden, to be honest with you. But, um, <laughs> but that with the fans, I just added a little bit more. For instance, I, I was I was pretty nervous. Nerves that had not, not come back to me. Well, nerves that had come back to me and that, I'd, that I thought I'd got over. Um, nerves like, if I get beat here tonight at Ellen Road, how, I, how the hell can I go down to the ground and watch watch Leeds again? I, it hurt me to be to be sat in my seat and just looking at the pitch, knowing that I got beat there. I'd let all these people down who've come to support me. I, I'd feel embarrassed going for like uh, going for a pie or a piss at half time because I'd have to walk past people and the, what would they say? All right, it's all right, Josh is always next time. Well, they're in the ne- next time, is it? Because I've been beat, you know. Even walking around City Centre, it, it killed me to just look at people. I'd be so embarrassed. But then I'd met a woman, a couple of my pals who'd, who'd been into City Centre, and um, I don't normally do that on fight day, but someone was just different in, on, on this day. So um, I'd met up with them, and it just calmed my nerves a little bit because I said, you know what, Josh, town is absolutely buzzing. Everyone, Everyone's chanting your name. Everyone's going to fight. So it made me a little bit more relaxed. Out. So obviously fans are involved there. Then when I pulled up to pulled up to the ground, I got off the off my little coach at the West Sand. And when I when I pulled up, there were around a couple of thousand fans waiting for me, for my appearance. And that gave me a boost as well. And then when I walked into the ring, you know, I've kind of got off blinkers on, so I'm not really seeing people as I'm as I'm uh, walking initially. I'm just blurred vision. But when I got into the ring, my old fella turned around to me and he said, listen, just have a minute, take it all in. And he says, then you, when he gets in, you switch on. So that's what I did. I took my, I took my gown off. I, I look over to the cop. You know, I look down at ringside. I look over to east. I look over to west. I'm seeing people over there with me. They're there with me. I can see the passion on the faces. They want it as, as bad as me. Obviously, a few of them are, have had a few, uh, a fair few shandies. So the proper tanked up, but I'm seeing, I'm looking down at people at ringside and some people, you know, regular faces and some people I might not meet again, but they're there with me and I can see it and they're looking in my eyes and I'm catching eyes with them and they're, and they're more or less mouthing, come on, Josh, come on, Josh, let's have it. And I can see the energy. But then all in this moment, I hear, you know, marching, and it's just echoing around and all of a sudden, bam, I'm back in zone and I've, I've you know, I've gone up another level. I feel like, kind of like I've just had a pint myself. And I'm all, <laughs> you know what I mean? I hear that and it's, and it's, and it's the second wind that's kicked in there and I'm all of a sudden back in it. And that's, I hear that wall of noise and I'm battling again. And even in, in 11th round, you know, I was, I was getting pretty tired. I'd, I'd burnt a lot of energy in the fight. I'd gone at quite a decent pace. You know, mentally, it'd been a, a long build-up. Um, I had massive blisters on bottom of my feet, which I could feel through my boots. I had a new pair of boots on, and um, and even again towards back end, they, they were chanting, you know, body body, and uh, going into all different lead songs. And all of a sudden, you're wearing that, and it's you're just feeding off it. It doesn't become tiredness no more because you're, you're more you're more focused on that. I think that gives you a little bit of an idea of how it can affect me in 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 that kind of sense. I guess it all circles back nicely to West Brom, actually, and the fact that basically, when all said and done, when the Leeds crowd is behind you, there's there's nothing better in the world. It's the greatest fuel. You're going to feel superhuman when that's going on. And I presume then, because I'm going to ask you for a prediction for the West Brom game, it's going to be a home win, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I feel I feel uh, pretty much comfortable. I feel that um, the way we've been playing, and if you're going off a of form, you know they they're getting relegated, so. 
for them, obviously, would be one finish. It'd be, it'd be nice for for their fans. You know, obviously, they're going to be there, but it's been nice for their fans to just uh, see them beat Leeds who would inform when everyone's talking about them. But I can't see it happening, mate. I can see this winning pretty comfortably. I'd like to say 3 0 if you're going to ask for a score prediction. I think they'll give the fans a little bit of uh, actual live viewing of what they've been doing all season. So, yeah, I feel they've come to a win. Fingers crossed. Thanks, Josh. We really appreciate you coming on uh, the Phil Hay Show. We'll catch up with you again again sometime. And Victor Otto's on next week and he's a character. I know that you've uh, you shared a moment with him around the championship trophy lift, didn't you? So we look forward to that. Yeah, he's, he's a top man, actually. And you know what? There's, there's been a few instances, weirdly so, because like um, Victor's Victor. We see all this in in in, in the stands, and and it, it pains me when I've I've read about shit about him over the years when people saying they don't know don't care about club because I've been in his presence, you know, prawn sandwich seats when I've been invited <laughs> by the club to um, sit in them white seats, and I've seen him, you know, knocking seven bells out of his chair. Need to concern concealed the goal, and then Hawaii he gets when we've we've scored. So I've I've also shared moments away with him away from the club and. You know, this is somebody who's always absolutely obsessed with it. You know, one time I, I went for a little bit of lunch with him and he just wanted to pick my head on sports psychology, on like my thing of like building up to fights and, and fighting for, from the leads to kind of understand what it's like to be someone else in a different field, but if still in front of the Leeds fans. And, and I found that, you know, obviously I enjoyed speaking to him and whatnot, but he only after bang on his heart because he's he wants to find so much about what this city is about and how it can how can apply little bits and bats to to the team to to make it obviously it's Marcelo who's you know the main one but just putting that philosophy across the, to the team it's it's something special so I think only now people are really starting to appreciate it or to like definitely I think so and we look forward to seeing what uh, what the summer brings Josh thank you very much we really appreciate it no worries lads cheers mate Phil Hay Show.